reputation sometimes for being a little uh, tough on people, you know, strong rules, laws, things like that. But they, they actually wrote some pretty uh, amazing pastoral works on how um, weak grace perseveres. And what do we mean by weak grace? Is there such a thing as weak grace? So tonight the topic is the victory of weak grace in the believer. And uh, that's to, and there may be one other sermon um, just on uh, another positive side so that we end well. You can always go back and listen to some of the sermons in the series. And then if you want, you can read another book, which may take who knows how long for publishers to, to do their work. So uh, the passage tonight, and while uh, you're turning there, I will be uh, preaching in Victoria next Lord's Day. The PCA church there asked me to uh, preach for them on March 5th. Uh, but I'm unable to on March 5th, so I've moved it forward to February. And uh, you know there's a, there's a saying about prophets in their hometown. Uh, so pray for me, because a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And uh, I don't even know who may show up. But I know my mother is inviting people. <laughs> And giving me sermon tips, by the way. Now, Mark, you will, you're, you're not going to be too complicated, right? You're going to say this. Now, Mark, make sure it's Mark, Mark, Mark. I says, Mother, I'm a professional. <laughs> if there's one thing you could just leave to me, could it be this one thing? Nope. Because mothers are mothers, aren't they? Um, so, yeah, I'll be away. And please, uh, I appreciate your prayers as uh, seek to bless the people there at the church in Victoria, the PCA Church uh, Lighthouse. First uh, Peter, then, chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And we'll end there. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. It is uh, to us uh, always a word that we are to take heed for. We know that your word is from on high and not below. We know that your words are filled with majesty, unlike any other word that proceeds from the mouth of mere mortals. And so we pray that we will give heed to the greatness of the one who speaks to us this night. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think there's, uh, for all of us, a sense in which we can try to understand the nature of weak grace in believers by looking at the topic in a number of ways. The first way we might understand weak grace is by looking at our own conversion, especially if we were converted uh, a little bit later in life, maybe as a teenager, maybe in your early 20s. Uh, typically, conversion stories and narratives, uh, if you're going to be converted, usually happen at uh, certain periods of one's life. But there are stories, of course, of people uh, being converted much later in life. 
And that is because the wind blows where it does, and so it is with the Spirit of God. But we look at our own lives and we think back to when we were first converted and we think about what we thought, what we didn't know, what we thought we did know, some of the things we thought were righteous practices, and we perhaps some of us look back and go, yeah, you know, I was, I was all out in left field at times. Uh, I look back just on my, my library and uh, some of the guys I used to read. I look back on some of the things I used to believe. I look back on some of the actions I used to do and how long it even took me to become somewhat consistent in just basic Christian practices we would take for granted. I think I was converted my first year of university, but it wasn't until my last year of university that I consistently attended a church that by God's providence was a miracle brought into my life. But did I think I was a Christian before consistently attending church? Yes. Was I a Christian before that? Probably yes. Did I know my left hand from my right hand? No. And uh, we have to take uh, heed to that because as I may bring up later, but in case I forget, I will say this. We have to remember that everybody's journey has begun at a different time in very different contexts and circumstances. Some are raised from the womb with great parents who are diligent and faithful, and by God's grace, the child embraces the faith, grows up with a maturity that we all marvel at and we thank the Lord for, and we see how God is faithful to His promises. And that person uh, may be indeed by the age of 20 quite a strong Christian. That's possible. Uh, we don't need to go into all of the other evidences of the fact that that doesn't always happen. Then there are some who they are brought into very difficult situations. Maybe they are raised by a grandparent because their parents have passed away. I know it hits especially close to home in South Africa where there are so many orphans or children living with their parents because their par- uh, with their grandparents because their parents died of AIDS during the crisis. And it was very common to see a young child with a grandmother, usually, or a grandfather, trying to raise them. And so you look at that child and how many of them do come to know the Lord, and you look at the circumstance in which they're raised, and then you look at the circumstance of a child here. And so it helps us to keep in mind that God's grace comes to people in different ways, in different circumstances, at different times and in ways that aren't always perceptible to us as human beings. Now, why would I open by saying that? Because we have to keep in mind that when we are judging others who are perhaps doing things that don't seem to be all that put together, try to take into mind uh, when they came to know the Lord. Try to take in mind who they are, their circumstances, Maybe they haven't had good mentors in their life. Maybe they have. That doesn't mean we don't seek to instruct. It means we don't seek to encourage. It doesn't mean we don't seek to rebuke even at times. I was rebuked lots when I was an early Christian, and I'm thankful for that. I needed it. But the point was, a lot of the faithful rebukes came in a manner that helped me and not harmed me as a Christian. And I believe that a lot of these mature saints who helped me understood the concept of weak grace. That is, grace had just begun. And so you do not treat 
every person in the church alike. Are we all under God's law? Yes. But are there certain people where we make greater exceptions for in terms of the patience we have? Yes. Now, why can we do that? Well, that's the heart of the sermon tonight. We can do that because we actually trust that God's weak grace will ultimately triumph no matter what. That we don't need to panic. If someone's doing something crazy and unlawful and they're going to get put in jail, should we stop them? Yes. And I wish I didn't have to make so many qualifications, but there may be some wicked person sitting here who wants to purposefully take my words out of context. So if you are that person, this is why I'm laboring. I hope you feel good about yourself. (laughs) So, as I was reading about this, I was struck by Stephen Charnock, one of my favorites, as you know. And he says, Is it not a demonstration of great power to keep a small spark of fire that it shall not be quenched in a flood of water? Yet behold, that little spark of grace in you shall not be quenched in you by the flood and torrent of your corruptions. It is by God's power that the least measure of grace shall be preserved. And I just lied. It was Christopher Love, not Stephen Charnock. Uh, Christopher Love was burned at the stake, but he writes a whole uh, book on weak grace. So did Stephen Charnock. And it's really quite an encouraging word to know that the least amount of grace, if it is grace given to you from on high by the hand of God, it will ultimately persevere and end in victory. And what is victory? Victory is going to your deathbed, trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Monica's mother, praise God, has had the happiest day of her life today. And why is that? Because she is in the presence of Christ. This is the best day of her life today. And the Yorks can rejoice that grace has persevered, that grace has won, and that God's purposes have been fulfilled in the most glorious way. But though I say there is such a thing as weak grace, I want you to also understand that doesn't mean we are content to just be immature Christians, that we just say, well, weak grace perseveres, you know, I can take it easy, and I'm so thankful for that sermon by Pastor Mark in February 2023. I haven't done a whole lot since. I'm not saying that as well. In Hebrews, for example, and I will come back to First Peter, but in Hebrews chapter 5, the author says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What is the author saying? He's saying that there is a point in time where if you are not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Savior, a rebuke may be necessary because you have had enough time with enough faithful teaching, 
enough blessings, enough of those who are around you and surrounding you with a good conduct that you should be eating solid food. But that clearly wasn't the case. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, which we heard earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we find that there are some who do escape, but as by the flames, because they remained in a state of what I call weak grace. Were they saved? Yes. Did they barely escape? Yes, that is true. Now, what can we say then about the glory of weak grace? Well, the glory of weak grace is that when you are a recipient of such grace, you at that time become desirable and beautiful in the eyes of God. Because as one Puritan said, grace casts a general glory upon all the noble parts of the soul. Now, listen to me carefully. What weak grace does when it first enters the soul is it illuminates every aspect of your Christian life. Your faith is affected. Your hope is affected. Your love is affected. Does that mean it's super strong faith? Super strong hope? Super strong love? No. But every aspect of what makes you a new creature is affected. You don't just say, well, I'm glad I got a little bit of faith. I don't have any hope. I don't have any love. I don't have any graces. No. Grace doesn't work that way. It illuminates every part of your spiritual being and therefore every part of your spiritual being is to be kindled. Show me a person with great faith and you will see a person with what? Great hope and great love. Show me a person with weak faith, you will see a person with weak hope and weak love. Now Christopher Love says that even if grace be little for the present, yet it will grow for the future to a greater measure. Why? Well, that's because Peter says we have been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have been given a new existence, a new life. And that new life will mean that all of the principles of that new life in our soul will ultimately persevere and end in victory. But when we receive that new life, it is transforming and it ought to transform us. One of my favorite movies growing up as a kid was Beauty and the Beast, the animation version. Of all the horrible, horrible animations from Hollywood. And there are many. The Little Mermaid. Don't, I shouldn't even mention it. It must be one of the most awful films ever produced. But... Beauty and the Beast have a very soft spot for. And you remember what happened to the beast when he learned to love. Is He was transformed. He was animated. Love entered into his soul. That was what was required for the curse to be broken. And there you see this transformation. Well, ours doesn't look quite so dramatic, by the way. But the point is that when grace enters into the soul, that inward transformation takes place. There is love there. There is faith there. There is hope. And the least measure of this, if it is grace from the hand of Christ, is enough to bring you to heaven. Now, Satan, I think, once believed, or shall I say, once denied the perseverance of the saints. 
And it was interesting because Stephen Charnock says, but since the example of Job, he has become more orthodox in his theology. Because he went and was like, ha, what about Job? Maybe we can get him to deny God. And I think after the example of Job, if he couldn't get Job to deny God, after that, I think, and I'm just saying I think, Satan must have been aware that there was no one, if there was true grace in that person, who would ultimately not persevere. If everything that happened to Job wasn't enough to get him to curse God and die as his wife suggested he should do, then he was going to do his best to attack God's believers and cause them the most spiritual harm that he can, even though he may know that weak grace perseveres. It may also be the case that he doesn't have infallible knowledge of who is truly a child of God, and so that is why he attacks relentlessly anyway in the hope of getting someone to turn away from the Lord who was not truly engrafted into Christ. So weak grace will persevere. Now, I know it's Sunday evening and quotes generally are not appreciated by me when I'm listening. And then it seems a bit hypocritical to give you a quote. But I really loved this from Charnock. He says, The vigor of our gracious actions is often enfeebled by the power of the flesh. That we do many times the evil we hate and we omit the good that we love. He sounds like the Apostle Paul there, I'll be honest. And we cannot deny but that our acts flow more often from a corrupt than a renewed principle. This is a a Puritan speaking. Yes, those actions which flow from grace are so tinctured with the vapors of the other sinful principle that they seem to partake more of the impressions of the law of sin than the law of the Spirit. This is how hard it is at first. So that our perseverance is not to be measured by the constant temper of our actions, but from the very fact that we have the habit of grace in us. But if you were to look at every action and weigh up every action, the Heidelberg Catechism calls our obedience small beginnings. If you were to measure it according to the severity of God's law and the holiness and purity with which God demands something to be totally undefiled, you would find that more of your actions, Charnock is saying, is covered in the flesh than in the Spirit. And even the acts of grace may be suspended at times in our lives by the prevalence of some sinful distemper And he says, as the operations of natural life are in the epileptic. That sometimes we even go through life where the effects of grace seem to be flooded out. Where you know those fountains where the water is pouring up and a big flood comes upon them. You would never know there is a fountain of water that is springing up. And you have to wait for that water to subside. And there the water starts springing up again. Our lives can be like that where sometimes the flood of sin comes in and you would never know there's a fountain of grace there. And as it dissipates, that fountain still continues to do its work because weak grace perseveres. One of the interesting things about David's life is what we would have thought of David before Nathan had come to him 
had David been killed by an arrow? Had David just committed adultery with Bathsheba? Had David gone and had Uriah killed in a merciless way? And had David then, by some happenstance, been killed by a spear or a rock or who knows what else, by a lion? What would we have said about David? And yet we know that David did not become a Christian in Psalm 51. In fact, when you look at Psalm 51, it's clear that he was a Christian and that he was asking for grace to be renewed in his life. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He doesn't say, I need your Holy Spirit for the first time. He says, do not take it from me because I need that weak grace to become strong grace. And so it was. I love the way Charnock describes Peter's grace. He says, grace can never be blown out, but there will be some smoke, some spark, whereby it may be rekindled. The smoking snuff of Peter's grace was lighted again by a sudden look by his Master. Weak grace had had been the story of, of Peter's denial of Jesus Christ on three occasions, but because there was grace there, when Jesus turned to him and looked at him, Peter wept bitterly and he repented. And I believe that when Peter said, you know that I love you, Lord, it was because the Lord knew that he did love him, but that he had acted in a weak way, not in an unbelieving, I do not belong to Christ in any sense way. So can Christians do some pretty stupid things at times? Yes. Does that excuse us? No. But the point is is that God is faithful, Christ will be honored, and He will make a way in which to recover you. He will make a way in which to turn His face towards you and you will look upon Him and you will be overcome by how weak you have been. And that may be the turning again to the strength. Now, am I saying what you think I'm saying? That someone can actually be a weak Christian, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, but then go through a period of backsliding whereby they become a weak Christian again? And I believe the answer is yes. We can grow in holiness, but we can truly backslide. The good news for us is that though we are responsible for our backsliding, yet grace will ultimately persevere. How God brings us back, I confess, is a great mystery to me. I am more inclined to take this view. And I'm saying it's wrong, but this is what I'm more inclined to. I'm backsliding. I think, okay, God is going to just absolutely give me a great spanking. It's going to happen in I don't know what awful providence, but He's going to bring me back and something bad's going to happen to me. And I typically lean towards in my own personal life of how I'm going to be recovered that I can only be recovered by means that are negative. And I just said before I said all of that, I was wrong, okay? And so if you're thinking that as well about how you are recovered, you're also wrong. There are seasons at times where God does bring us back a lot more gently than we think He ordinarily would. 
there are some times where He allows us time to actually see the errors and make the changes we know we need to make without some calamity happening. Do calamities sometimes happen to bring people close to the Lord? Yes. But that isn't the only way that God uses. Sometimes He is extremely gentle with us and allows us to see that we have been drifting and He allows us the time to make those changes we know we need to make. It isn't always a thunderous spanking from heaven. Though it may be. But it isn't always. Sometimes it's exceedingly gentle because He knows we are but flesh. He knows how weak we are. And so He doesn't always treat us as our sins deserve. Now I want to just make a few points of application because maybe you're thinking, well, I need to know then how can I be assured that I have grace in me? That I've received grace. I know this is a bad idea, but here's some advice for people who are looking for a spouse. Oh, hi, Zach. I assume you're still looking. No. Well. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot. Well done. What really matters for Zach? Finding a nice young lady. Let's make this intensely personal. Or his brothers for that matter. Three of them. Sitting there, wanting to find love. What ultimately matters? All that actually matters is that the grace of God is in the young lady. I'm dead serious about this. Would I like my son to find a nice Presbyterian girl who's memorized the catechism? You betcha with a father who owns a ranch and doesn't have to live in the city and he can go be a cowboy, that'd be great. So un-Jones-like. Go and do it, son. Been watching too much 1923. But all that actually really matters is, is the grace of God in that person? Because if the grace of God is in that person, they will have the fruit of the Spirit to some extent. They will have love. They will have joy. They will have peace. They will have kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Now, are there lots of other things we should look for? Absolutely. Don't walk out of here and say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. There are things that matter, but ultimately all that absolutely is a non-negotiable is, is the grace of God in this person. Because someone can have every other aspect of their life together they can be intelligent. They can be wealthy. They can be beautiful. They can be powerful. They can be a Presbyterian. They can have all these. But if the grace of God isn't in that person, you're far worse off in the long run, despite appearances to the contrary in the short run. Now, how do we know then such a person has grace, even if it is weak grace? Well, here are the non-negotiables. May they have Weak grace, yes. Must they have weak grace? At least that. But here's the non-negotiables. They must still have some form of hatred of sin. They may not have memorized book three of Calvin's Institutes with the first line. They may not have even memorized all of the great truths of the religion, but they must hate their sin. They must see sin for being evil. And they must see sin as something that has to be dealt with. And they must know that they are a sinner. 
that they're not going to come into a relationship or into a church or into a family or into a friendship thinking that they're automatically always going to be innocent of everything because of self-righteousness. There is no room whatsoever in the kingdom of God for anyone who has a high view of themselves. You must know you're a sinner. And though it is defeated, it dies a lingering death. That is the first non-negotiable. The second is in connection with that, Christ must be loved. How do you know that you've received weak grace if it is true grace? You will hate your sin, but it's not enough to merely hate your sin. You must turn to the One who alone can deal with that sin, Christ. And so there must be some degree of loveliness in Christ. Do you know all of the mysteries of His person and work? No. Do you love Him as much as you should? No. Are you aware that you should love Him more? Yes, but you still can say, I love you. Just as Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. Right after he had denied Him, he could still say, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you love Jesus Christ? Because Paul says in Ephesians 3.17, we are strengthened with power through God's Spirit in our inner being. This is a non-negotiable for a Christian because Christ dwells in our heart through faith. If Christ is in your heart, it is impossible then for you to not love Him to some extent and to hate your sin. His presence necessitates that. Not a perfect hatred of sin, not a perfect love of Christ. There still must be a hatred of sin and there must be a love of of Christ. Now, if I could just have my dessert with this, this is what I would also say. You do desire to be stronger. How do you know you have grace? You desire more of it. Christopher Love, when he encourages the believer who is content with their weak measure of grace, he's anticipating some of you. I know it. He says, though you shall have the fruit of your grace when you die, yet you will lack the comfort of your grace while you live. If you're content with weak grace, you will be content then with a lack of comfort. A lack of assurance. It is strength of grace that gives assurance. Weak grace will bring your soul to heaven, but it is the strength of grace that will bring heaven into your soul. Now, no complaining about reading quotes after that one. Weak grace will bring your soul to heaven. Amen. But it is the strength of grace that brings heaven into your soul so that you desire to be there. That you long to be there with the One who is the Lord of heaven. Now, if I may have an extra piece of dessert. One other thing there is actually a confidence that God will do His work in you. That Though you know you need to love Him more, though you wish you hated your sin more, though you see that your progress has not been as you believe it ought to be, you still love Him, you still hate your sin, and you do desire to be stronger, but you also have a confidence in God that He will do His work. And this is exceedingly important that your confidence is going to be in God to do the work because He's actually the only one who can do it. You can't produce in yourself 
what is alone the gift of God. Can you receive the grace of God? Yes. Can you read God's Word? Yes. Can you listen to sermons? And can you sing songs? And can you pray? Yes. But if there's going to be any increase, we know that increase belongs to God. And so, you should be able in some serious way to go to God and say, I'm confident, O Lord, that Your work in me will persevere because it's Your work in me. And the more confident we are in God's work in us, you'll be surprised at how that might actually make you a stronger Christian. Are you a weak Christian? Acknowledge it, but then acknowledge God's work in you. And that may be the first step to your growing in grace because you are so confident in God. It's when we become self-reliant, self-sufficient, that we actually start to fall back and we resort to works of the flesh and we lose sight of where our true victory is. Our sins may be strong, but God is stronger. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, no one. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for grace. Even if it is weak, O Lord, we put our confidence in weak grace because we know that You can stir that grace up to great strengths. And yes, we do desire stronger grace, stronger love for Christ, stronger hatred for sin. O Lord, we pray that it may be so with each and every one of us. But O Lord, if there be any, if there be any who are rejecting the free offer of grace from on high, please arrest their soul and bring them to the place where they can say, yet not I, but Christ in me. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.